Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are tackling the very important area of structuring. You can have it all or can you? Tax effectiveness, asset protection, utility, estate planning, all absolutely critical important parts of the journey. The key thing here, as always, is to get started. But once you've started on that journey, keep learning as you go through and improving the structure you operate. Take plenty of notes and as always, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiel. Mr. Baxter, thank you very much for having me. Now, today's topic, jumping straight into it, is not the most fun, but neither is getting your house taken off you. So what we're gonna talk about today, as the segue would uh, would suggest, is the notion of structuring. So mm. a little dry, but I think we can make this one fun with our humor. I hope so, because it is certainly dry, but it is critically important. And I'd absolutely urge everybody to stay to the end. I've got a little tidbit I'll give you in Ooh. terms of something that's not the cheapest piece of advice I've been given. It's pretty expensive getting it, but uh, it's, it's proved to be very, very good advice. That's for sure. Free so for our listeners today. Free for our listeners that? today. Part of the benefits of uh, being a loyal follower on our podcast. So uh, structuring, absolutely. And you know, we, we talk about so many things in the investing world, whether it's choosing an asset class, uh, an instrument to invest in. But taking a step out of that is what entity, what legal entity are you going to be purchasing that in? And there are a lot of different legal entities which we'll dive into in a few moments. But really, what is the whole purpose, I guess, of structuring? And I guess, yeah, there are four key elements to it. One is tax effectiveness, and it's hugely important, especially when you live in a a relatively high tax uh, country such as Australia, to make sure you are as effective and efficient as you can be in that space. Number two is asset protection. Uh, And what we're going to see as we go through this conversation is most of the time you can kind of have one, but not necessarily both. So you've got to choose which one's the most important to you. The third one on there is utility, is making sure that the entity that you're working in is flexible enough to actually give you what it is that you want at the end of it. And I guess the last bit goes into estate planning. Wow, that sounds like a lot. So if we talk about then AB, I think maybe weaving those through those elements through each individual structure that we could talk about might be great for our listeners. So mm-hmm. if we just start at the, the arguably the most simple and probably the most common, which would just be, let's say, your personal or maybe a joint structure with your partner. Got it. Okay. So, you know, the key thing with this conversation is we don't ever want to create roadblocks or friction to stop people starting on their investment journey. And you could say, look, you've got to wait till you get all this right before you start. Just get started. Um, and the easiest way for people to get started is obviously in their own name. So whether that's opening a trading or broking account uh, in your own name, whether it's buying your primary place of residence, they're the simple steps to take uh, to get kicked off. And I think it's one of those things, getting that first cab off the rank and actually getting started is probably the biggest roadblock for people. As you start to build that momentum up, I think, and, and, and then as you start to scale, you do have to fairly early on think about what structuring is going to work for you. And I can't stress it enough, and I'm sure we'll allude to this several times during our conversation today, is get the best advice. We've spoken already about how important it is to have the right team around you, and you do need advice on all of the things that we're going to talk about here because they are quite complex. Got you. So if we look at the personal structure, just for a quick moment, AB, let's say from a taxation perspective, you're taxed at your marginal rate if it's a CGT, is that correct? Yeah, look, if it's a primary place of residence, there's no capital gain, but you know, if you're holding assets in your own name, if there's an income flow that comes from that, uh, you are gonna be taxed at whatever your marginal rate might be. So if you're a higher income earner, that can start to become quite punitive uh, in the first instance. So from a tax effectiveness perspective, 
it's not a great place. Um, from an asset protection perspective, it's definitely not a great place because, you know, let's say, for example, and, and, and I'll, I think we'll just keep it consistent as an example. Let's say gotcha. you're in a, a high-risk profession and let's say you're an anaesthetist where there's a chance that something could go wrong in theatre and you end up getting sued. Uh, and we'll use that as a case study for what we describe as high risk. Gotcha. <clears throat> if, you, if you've built your assets up in your own name and you're in a high risk position and you get sued, well, everything's on the table for somebody to claim against, which you know, potentially leaves you, you know, in, a, in a very perilous situation where you, know, you could lose your family home. Um, not ideal at all. So that notion of starting to think about structuring becomes very important. Not so much, I guess, in the early days, you may be starting with an investment account of some sort, but when you start to move into things like property, um, to change the structure around a property involves transferring the ownership of that, which incurs stamp duty, which can be incredibly expensive because you know it's a big asset. So you've got to sort of think with the end in mind. So once you've got started on this investing journey, you know, individual make your or, or joint, do a little bit, get a feel for what investing is all about, and then set yourself a goal within 12 months that you're going to sit down with your accountant and advisors uh, to, to, to talk about, okay, we're going to get more serious with what we're doing here, and we need to then move into some structuring. And look, doing stuff in your own name, there are some concessions. So for example, land tax, um, depending on which state you're in, obviously it's quite fragmented, but land tax, for example, can be quite beneficial for you as an individual because there's a there's a, usually a fairly high threshold. Whereas if you own land in an entity, um, whether that's a company or trusts and some other things, you don't necessarily qualify for land tax exemption. So th there are swings and rounds and all of this, right? And, and you need to get professional advice that's current at that particular point in time because these things can of course move around they're quite politically charged at times absolutely look one thing that you and i both hate and i'm sure most of our listeners would agree would be the notion of paying tax so mm -hmm. if we then parlay that into our next structure which would be a company structure mm -hmm. where the taxation is fixed so let's talk about some of the pros and cons yeah. there but moving into a corporate structure certainly makes a lot of sense. And if you think about it, and if we use yeah, the, the stock market as an example of that, um, one of the things that you may find uh, if you're buying and selling assets is that it becomes a, a capital gains tax liability if you haven't, had the, if you haven't had held the assets for more than 12 months. If you work in a company structure, uh, it's, it's income within your business. So automatically your tax is income then instead of CGT. And your tax rate goes from 50% to you know, 30 or even 25%, depending on the nature of the company, because there are, there are several tax rates for companies. So straight away, you've got the ability to enjoy you know, quite a significant advantage there. Also, you know, in terms of making claims for deductions and things like that, things are just generally more organized if it's in a company. Obviously, you've got to file tax returns and things like that. You may then have to start paying GST, depending on your turnover. Um, but it, it is a nice, tidy box uh, from an efficiency perspective uh, and probably more tax effective arguably than doing it in your own name. From an asset protection uh, perspective, again, you know, there's the potential that the, the company could be sued depending on what it, it does. So if you are someone that's building up assets, probably uh, a good thing to do is to have those held within an investing company that is not a business that's engaged in normal commercial activities. So, you know, let's say for argument's sake, you've got a, um, you know, you, you've got a, you're a building business, but you're also building your assets uh, in there. It's, it's probably a good idea to have them separated because if your major business goes under, there could be a claim against the assets that you're then building uh, outside of that. So good to have it siloed and then a different entity. So it's, it's a really good place to start. It's an improvement on doing it in your own name. But I think as you move further along uh, the spectrum, you know, the, the, there are other probably better structures in the company for that. So company structures though, AB, great positives. Negatives, 
a little bit more admin and probably cost more to run each year, yeah, right? a little bit more. Um, and again, that's why I say if you're getting started, just get started in your own name rather than layering up a lot of costs and admin and extra fluff and, and friction that might stop you on this journey into investing. So definitely, um, as you move to be a little bit more serious corporate, and then ultimately, I think uh, moving on to the next level from there would be, um, I guess, into, into trust structures. Ooh, okay. Now, there's a couple of different kinds of trusts mm. that you can have. Can we talk to each of those, AB, what they represent, pros and cons? So, yeah, there are four or five uh, broadly used trusts. There are more than that. There are you know, special needs trusts, for example. One of the great things, um, if you've got a, say for argument, I've got a, a good buddy of mine that's in this situation, they've got a very severely handicapped child and you can set up a disability trust, for example, which is massively tax effective, ensuring that that child's income is assured over a very substantial period of time. That's We're not going to go into a lot of depth on that now. That's something to talk to your advisor on if that circumstance fits for you. But that's an example of I guess the perfect vehicle for the perfect set of circumstances, disability trust. So parking that one to the side. Some of the main trusts, um, you know, a, a discretionary trust is probably the most common uh, that people have. Uh, you may call it a family trust. Uh, and that's where the trustee has the ability at their discretion, hence the name, to choose how to distribute gains within that trust. And what that then enables you to do is to be fairly tax effective in terms of where you place income. So if you've got members of the trust that are in the same household, that are on a lower tax rate than you, it would make sense to pay that distribution to them. They're paying a lower marginal tax rate on that gain as opposed to getting slammed at, at potentially a higher rate uh, of tax. So that's a, a discretionary trust. Again, from a, an asset protection perspective, um, the trust is its own legal entity. So if somebody goes after you, you're the high risk anesthetist and you get sued, well, that's okay, but the assets in the trust don't belong to you, they belong to the trust. And the trust isn't the person or the entity that's getting sued, you are. So there's a, a division in there which makes them, I'm not going to say infallible because that would be a really strong misbelief to hold. There's always a chink in any form of armour, but a significantly stronger uh, way of ring fencing and protecting your assets would be to park them in something like that. So that's a discretionary or, or, or family trust. The next type of trust would be, uh, say, a unit trust. Uh, a unit trust is where, let's say there are five members, uh, mum and dad might have you know, 40% each in terms of the shares of that unit, leaves 20% across the three kids. So they might have you know, six and a half, seven percent uh, stake in that each. Gotcha. And any proceeds are then distributed, prorated across the proportion of units that you have in that. So there are advantages and disadvantages to that kind of structure. The advantage, I guess, is that you know what you're getting. There's a level of certainty where you can't be kind of cut out. Um, the disadvantage is it removes that ability to be very, very effective tax-wise in terms of where you choose to distribute that stuff. So again, yeah, there's a swings uh, and roundabout situation there. Um, thirdly, testamentary trusts, um, and these are these are where we start to move in, I guess, to the estate planning side of things. Uh, and, and, and in very simple terms, the way a testamentary trust works, when the testator uh, passes away, um, rather than um, their estate being passed on to the, the nominated beneficiaries, it might be in their will, uh, the estate actually gets put into a trust that's held on behalf of the beneficiaries. Uh, and the advantage to doing that can be from an asset protection perspective, certainly quite important. So if, for example, one of the beneficiaries might be one of your kids and they could be going through 
some drama in the family law space, maybe a separation or, or similar, uh, you've got the ability to not necessarily then pass the asset on to them and, and leave it in the asset pool for that family law dispute to go after. So it's a way of preserving and, and keeping things maybe a link or two up the chain, uh, which is it is one way of looking at a, a testamentary trust. Also, and I think this is where it can become very, very useful, and in my circumstance, certainly, if you've got quite young children, uh, and that is that you know giving your kids you know, a substantial asset base, nice as it might be, it might be a goal for you to do it, maybe it isn't. Um, but if they're not old enough to really understand that, and you're going to have administrators and people that assist with that sort of stuff, I get. But you know, holding it in a testamentary trust means that you can you can keep it managed central until such times as they're able to, or in a position where they can be controlling it themselves. So it gives you that little break. And there's two practical examples of using it. it. Can be very very tax effective. Certainly very very useful from an asset protection perspective, and extremely useful from an estate planning perspective. So it ticks a number of boxes that are there, and that's why it's a little bit further down the food chain than just holding something in your own name. What about a bloodline trust? I've heard mm. that talk to you a couple of times. Yeah, look, I've got a, a couple of buddies in the in the advice space, uh, and one of them is a really old school, uh, and he loves bloodline trusts. Uh, and oftentimes, um, you know, a client will come in, and effectively what a bloodline trust is, the assets pass on and can only be passed on to people in your bloodline. Makes so sense. Yeah, uh, and again, from an asset protection spe- uh, perspective, that, that can be quite appealing. Um, from an ego perspective and keeping it in the family, it's kind of like the royal family, you know, it's just this succession rule that just rolls on through. Um, you know, it doesn't just have to be your kids, it can be other members of your family too, but that's effectively how they work. And I guess from an asset protection perspective, all the assets are held by that trust as opposed to the individual, which then insulates the beneficiary uh, from any potential grab at those assets because they're not theirs. They're only a beneficiary of it. They're not the owner of. Wow. Okay. The theme I'm starting to understand here is that trusts further down the food chain seem to be pretty good from an asset protection perspective as well as taxation. They can be when they're administered in the right way uh, for the right reasons, for sure. Um, Again, I can't stress how important it is to get the right advice to choose the right pathway uh, for you. And again, Oftentimes, these can become quite a, a political hot potato where um, you know they're seen as masking assets by the wealthy, uh, which I suppose it could be an element of truth to it. But again, our job simply is to play within the rule book uh, as it's dictated. And if the rule book says you can do this stuff, well, our job is to advise our clients on what they can then do within that legally. So, gotcha. um, so yeah, I guess that you know it's an area that is is subject to scrutiny depending on the uh, the government of the time, uh, and it's something you need to be minded of for sure. Last one here, AB, what about a self-managed super fund? Can mm. be very tax effective. What about from an asset protection perspective? Yeah, look, self-managed super, ultimately, you know, your tax rate's effectively 15%, uh, which compared to your marginal rate is, is obviously very, gets, right? is pretty attractive. And I think from, from, from an asset protection perspective, it's also a pretty good vehicle um, in terms of, you know, again, let's say you, you run a business that's gone into administration and you may be personally liable. Your super is separate from that and typically um, is, 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 is regarded as ring-fenced on there. Um, one area that it isn't necessarily ring-fenced, of course, is in relation to a family law matter. So if you're going through a divorce, um, the superannuation fund is, is, is part of the pool of assets that may well then then sit within there. So don't think that from from, from an asset perspective, asset protection perspective, that also includes things like family law. There are different rules that sit in there, and I'm sure we'll have a family lawyer in here at some point talking about the. Uh, Isn't your the, wife a family lawyer? She certainly is. Yeah, it's a pretty good one too. So hence why I'm a very good husband. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 speaking of structuring yeah. and um, and all this kind of thing, yeah. it, that doesn't surprise me. 
Look, from the sounds of this, AB, I mean, this is all great information, yeah. absolutely, but it does sound a little confusing, of course, yeah. and probably a little confronting to most people. Mm. You talk about having the right advice and mm. the right team around you. What's your suggestion to anyone out there who's maybe wondering what to do next? Look, the key thing to do next is get started. It's as simple as that. And get started in the easiest low friction way, which is as an individual or joint. And, and then as you move through the different machinations and also comes down to the type of you know asset or type of investing that you're going to be doing because you know some things are more aggressive and risk on in which case asset protection would be a significantly more important factor uh, than it might be for someone that's just got a meat and potatoes you know managed fund investment portfolio you know if you're a developer or in developer finance or something like that you know that's much further down the the, the line of risk versus someone that's just got a, you know an equity fund or an ETF portfolio that they're running yeah going back to super uh, yeah we talked about being tax effective and the asset protection, that's all great. There's always a flip side. Uh, and the flip side on super, of course, is that you can't access your money uh, until you get to preservation Shame. age. So, you know, it was at 55, 60-ish. And again, it's one of those things that, unfortunately, you know, the rules keep changing on that. And I, I think from, you know, putting, putting my hat on as someone that, you know, owns a financial planning business and, and we're in financial markets here, um, it's very, very, very hard to give people good quality long-term advice when the government of the day keeps moving the goalposts as to what your retirement age can be, how much you can put in, what your contributions need to be, what the max is, how the, anything over that is taxed and so on. So it'd be great if they just left that alone and they're the rules and you can actually then help people fund their retirement. And you know, again, there's quite a lot of backlash out there insofar as you know, self-managed super funds are all about rich people. Um, they're not because you know the threshold for making it cost-effective to set up an SMSF is probably only about 250,000 these days, which is far from wealthy, like or at the big end of town. Um, and effectively, what you're doing is giving people control, a vested interest, and ultimately, you know, probably a better retirement outcome. And the better retirement outcome that you're able to provide for someone off their own dollar by doing their own investment management, the less burden there is on the state. So the government should encourage it, not shut it down. But again, you know, it's a very politicized area. Two things with super to be very minded of. And this is one of the big differences, I think, between all of the other structures that we've, we've talked about. Uh, be it you know, individual joint company uh, and trusts, they're typically um, governed by the law of the state. Uh, and given the fact that we live in a, a, a very fragmented country in that regard with different rules in different states, superannuation is governed by Commonwealth law and, and the CIS Act. So it is very different in terms of the way that the rule book works there. But it can be very, very handy for estate planning uh, and a self-managed super fund these days can also involve the kids as well as, as the mum and dad. So it can be a great way of, of, of facilitating you know, asset protection, tax effectiveness, and of course, estate planning if you've done it the right way. So there's a lot. To, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot yeah. in there, and and I guess you know the key thing um, that I would suggest to everybody through this, as we keep saying, is make sure you get good quality advice on this to make sure that what you're doing is what you think you're doing, because often that can be very very different. I've fallen foul of that in the past myself, where yeah you know, we're doing this, and then you get a, a second opinion on that advice. So that's not going to get you to where you really want to be. So as you become more invested. And I'm not going to say more sophisticated because that's a little bit of a condescending way to describe it. But certainly as you get more invested and you've got other things going on, taking the time to make sure that you've laid the board out the way you want it to get you to where you want to be is absolutely critically important. And, and listening to this podcast or reading a book or worse still, Googling on how to structure 
do yourself a very serious favor. Great that you're listening to our podcast and we appreciate the support, but this is a bridge to reach out and actually ask for bespoke help on this. Personalized advice, right? Exactly right, because there's, there's no one size fits all with this kind of stuff because everyone's circumstances are slightly different. Everyone's objectives are gonna be slightly different and, and, and having that one-on-one conversation or maybe two-on-one or however the dynamic might work, it's just imperative if you want to make sure you get what you thought you were going to get. Um, you know, it's like, you know, if you go into a restaurant and you don't even look at the menu, say, I'll oh, bring me what's good. And you go, well, actually, I don't eat chicken. It's because you didn't take the time to plan out what it was that they were going to bring for you. Whereas if you look through and say, I'll oh, take the steak and it comes out, you know, you're getting a steak and you're happy and very crude way of explaining it. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I said I'd give people a tip at the end. Yeah, wait, you said you, you want to make sure you get what you thought you were going to get, which I've been wanting this tip. So what, what have we got here, AB? Uh, Million so, dollar advice. So, so this was some fairly expensive advice. And again, don't follow this blindly. You need to get it assessed and, and, and work to your particular circumstances. But yeah, a while back, I was in a situation where prior to being married, um, obviously I've got a primary place of residence and no debt. Um, I'm in a reasonably, uh, being a business owner, I suppose, in, in, a, in a high risk position in that regard. And so what do you do with your house that's in your own name? Because obviously don't want to be paying capital gains tax on it. So you're getting that, that tax deduction there. Um, you got no debt, which is a nice position to be in on it. So you've got great equity there, another tick, but then you go, but I'm also very vulnerable with that. So one of the things that you can do, there's a, a process, and again, please don't take this as gospel, you need to get advice on this, but there's a, a process you can go through which is called a gift and loan back. Sounds so, interesting. So outside of your primary place of residence, let's say you've got a, a, a trust where you're keeping your other assets which are, which are more protected, uh, arguably in a more tax effective structure. Effectively, you gift your equity in the house to the trust. Now by gifting it, there isn't a change of the beneficial owner, still in your name the trust then lends back uh, over the, the cash that you've gifted out of it as equity. And effectively the trust then has a charge over the house. So on paper, you've got a debt-free house uh, that's in your name with the tax deductible that comes from it. But if someone were to sue you, you don't personally have any equity in that property because it's, it's all owned trust. by the trust. And does this only work if you've got no debt in the no, house? You can do that on any particular. I'll just use that as the example because okay. that happened to be happened to be my circumstance. Um, and it's one of those things you do have to revisit because as the value of the house goes up, you might have taken say two, three, five million, whatever it might be, out of the house. But if the house is appreciated in value, that equity is starting to build up again. So it's something you do have to revisit. Um, there's been some instances where the gift and loan back, of course, has been challenged in court for the right reasons because it's very clearly an attempt by the person doing it in the court case, at least, to try and mask and shield their assets. They hadn't done it properly and the court unraveled it and it didn't work. And that's why I can't stress how important it is to make sure you get top shelf advice from trusted advisors that really do know their stuff on this to make sure it works. But there's an example where maybe you can have almost everything. Great tax situation, uh, a great asset protection situation, um, you get the utility of being protected that, uh, in the way that you want uh, and all done in a fairly uh, efficient way. Uh, and that's what happens when you get great quality advice. So, you know, don't go out and do that yourself. Go get advice. It may not be right for you. Maybe the legislation has moved a little bit since then. Get some advice on it, which is, I guess, the theme that we've said all the way through this. Get expert advice on each of these steps because trying to unravel these things if they're wrong is prohibitively expensive. You don't want to find yourself in that. So get it right first time and have the peace of mind that can come from having your structuring really under control. Uh, and, and it's one of those areas that it might not be exciting and it isn't. Uh, but as you said, the, the harrowing situation that you maybe spent 
a long, long time of hard work to build up an asset base. And then for whatever reason, somebody could come and take it away from you and leave you and your family you know, homeless or in a really vulnerable position that you, know, you, you did have the ability to avoid by getting the right structuring in play earlier on means it's a crucial part of the whole journey into money and investing. Paying less tax and having your assets protected sounds pretty fun to me, AB. So mm. thanks very much for the insight, the information today. Cracking little episode there. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we we'll look forward to hosting you next week.